Welcome to Running on Purpose, a weekly podcast dedicated to training the body, the mind, and the soul for what the race requires. My name is Steve, and I shall be your host. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Running on Purpose podcast. This week's topic um, is going to be on creating a marathon race plan. Last week, I went through a very short uh, pseudo rant where I basically discussed suffering and how suffering plays into what you're training and your racing. This episode, I assume, will be much longer. Um, I'm not going to cut it up into multiple episodes, even if it ends up being beyond the hour mark, because I think that the context and the conversation and the the, the content, I should say, not the context and the conversation, but the content is uh, important to have all in one place. And you can choose to consume it in any way you like. You can cut it into chunks. You can listen to it all the way straight through. Hopefully it's one that you can come back to multiple times as you look at each race that you run. You can use this guide, which is pretty thorough and has already had over a year's worth of user interfacing with it. Uh, my Telos running group, the Ethos group, has been using this particular uh, methodology now for over a year. And I came to it through many, many years of having one-on-one conversations with athletes and getting them prepped for their marathon. And so frequently when they would come into their races, or my, at least their meeting with me, they would have very little information readily at hand. Uh, I was in a really good spot if the athlete, number one, um, knew the course or had, had had experience running the course. That always made my job easier. Uh, had a better idea of what their actual training was like and, and the could, could reflect on it and, and consider a few points. And then finally, if they really knew how to wrap their head around the challenges that might happen. So only in this episode, am I, uh, in this episode, I'm only talking about the strategy and the plan. Of course, there'll be some big picture items as is always the case with me when I talk about racing. And when I talk about getting ready for command performances, there are some um, big picture issues that need to be addressed and looked at. So anyway, again, this has been tried and tested and hopefully you'll find it to be valuable to you. We're going into the spring marathon season and it's useful for whatever distance you run. In fact, I think it's useful for whatever, even if you ran a 5K all the way up to a marathon. Now, I'm going to be covering specifically marathon and the marathon itself, not any specific marathon, but just generally the marathon distance. If there's enough interest, I'll do this for other race distances as we have people interested. Um, it seems that many people listen to me primarily for my marathoning. Uh, recommendations, though I feel comfortable talking about stuff everywhere from the 800 all the way up to the 100 miler, uh, it just seems to be what people are looking for. So, all right, let's get started. <clears throat> so, number one, most important thing you need to do, and my suggestion for you, is to take this information in and listen to it all the way through, and then come back with a pen and paper or with a computer, and then start doing the prep work that you need to because there's a lot of writing and a lot of reflecting and a lot of gathering of information that you need to have ready to go when you sit down and listen to this podcast in a, in a way to create your plan. 
So it could be that you listen to this all the way through once and then come back at it again as you dissect your the various portions of your plan and you'll know in advance what pieces of, of, of intel you need in front of you in order to be effective at taking that information, dissecting it, and getting the best, compiling it in a way that will give you the best chance for success on race day. So here's the thing. First thing we need to do is our prep work. So you need to review your why. You, by this point in time, if you're listening to this podcast, you already know knowing what your running purpose is is crucial and critical in order to manage late race challenges, early race challenges, uh, crises, um, challenges that come up throughout the course of the of the race distance. And so in my experience, most people who have done adequate work on knowing why they're running that particular event. Um, I personally think it's good to know why you're running at all, but that's okay if you don't want to go down that road. You do need to know why you're doing this race because it will play into the narrative and it will play into the strategy. And in the end, it will absolutely play into the execution. If you think that it won't, I can tell you that I cannot conceive of one single race that I've run of a marathon distance or any athletes that I've coached who were approaching the marathon distance as a race, they all get challenged with their why. Why is that? Because the marathon always wins. The marathon will, there's something special about the race distance in the sense that it, it, it runs you through your fuel sources you're running just fast enough to continue to have to work pretty hard at it as opposed to more ultra-running ultra distances, but not so fast that you accumulate lactic acid very quickly like in the 5K and 10K race, short race distances. So you've got this aerobic activity that basically starts to challenge your pounding. It starts to challenge your ability to utilize fuels. It starts challenging your reasons for why you're doing the thing that you're doing. So I think that's really important. Be sure in advance that you've re reviewed your why. The next point, review your goal. What is your objective? Probably most of you have come into this race with an idea of what you want to achieve, whether it's a time goal or running a beautiful race or beating a particular person or running faster than you've run before on the course running a personal record, getting a qualifier for Boston or some other race or some other race, always there seems to be some goal, reason why you're running it, even if that goal is just to have a good time. Review that. Make sure you know where that is. Next, review your training. Be sure that you know what you've done in your, in your program, what work has worked for you, what workouts haven't worked for you. Then you want to review your course. You want to go over the course specifics, know what's going on on that course, what specific challenges are unique to that course, and where do you think you will run into challenges, and where do you need to have your game, your game face on and have your yourself expecting to have um, good times, bad times, whatever might be occurring, knowing your course is critical to that. And finally, reviewing your heart. Where is your heart in this regard. It's This is a, a sort of a variation on the knowing your why, but you want to be sure your heart's into it. And you want to make sure as you're standing, just before you stand on that starting line, 
that you know why you're doing it, but that you're also ready for that challenge, that you're stepping to that and that you're saying, I want this. Check your heart, okay? All right, so those are, that's the big picture of what we're going to be doing today. And one note to this, anyone who would like to get a copy of my working notes, I'll have them in the show notes, but sometimes people have been telling me they've been hard to, to get access to. Feel free to send me an email, sisson at telosrunning.com, and I'll be happy to send you a document that will be entitled Creating a Marathon Race Strategy, and it'll even have a link to this podcast so you can look at it at any point in time. If you'd like that, just send me an email and I'll make sure that you get it. Okay, so aligning your fitness and your circumstances with your objective. This is a huge point, okay? How likely are you to achieve your goal? You need to be thinking about this from the outset, okay? Are you 90 to 100% likely of hitting your goal? Are you 80 to 90% likely of hitting your goal? Are you less than 80% sure of your ability to hit your goal? And by this, I mean likely you should take probably more from a definition of being assured, right? Like you feel very confident. You feel would be 190 to 100%. You feel reasonably confident would probably be 80 to 90%. And you feel not confident of your ability to hit your goal. Now, what is fitness circumstances? These are, I'll be talking about these more later as we go along, but these are the overall generality of how your training went, what this course looks like, what the conditions are going to be like, and where your mindset and your heart is in terms of getting yourself ready to go. So this is crucial. You need to know what your fitness and your circumstances are when it comes to this objective. Why? Because this is how we're going to create a plan. We need to know what your objective is, and then your likelihood of achieving that objective to create the kind of race strategy generally that will be put you in the best position to effectively reach your goal. So I like to talk about, let's, let's talk about another topic too before we get too far down the road here. The idea of negative splitting. So some of you may or may not know what this means. Those of you who do, um, consider this a review. And those of you who don't know, it's very important Almost every marathon that you run, when you talk to people, they'll be making some kind of question for you about what your race plan is. They'll say, are you planning a negative split or a positive split? Well, very rarely do people plan positive splits. Probably only the most experienced runners would go into a race saying, I expect to have a positive split. Some of you might. But what they mean by that is the what, how much faster is your last half of the race than your first half of the race, generally. Of course, negative splits can happen just in the last two to three to four miles, but most people look at it this as what happens in the first 13.1 miles of the race, what happens in the second 13.1 miles in the race, and most people, based on the way that they uh, create a race strategy, will want to get a negative split. And the negative split is a pretty sexy idea in the idea in, in the world of running. In fact, sometimes people won't hit their objectives from a time perspective, but they'll be able to say, hey, I ran a negative split, and you'll hear them take pride in that. Why is that? Why do they take pride in it? Because it's really hard to do. It's really hard to run a negative split just energetically from the focus of a marathon because you're going to run out of fuel. At some point in time, 
around the two hour portion, two hour time frame in a in a marathon, you start shifting from burning glycogen or sugar fuels and moving into burning fat fuels. Of course, the level of experience you have with that and the level of comfort you have with running um, with little or no nutrition or where you maybe have trained your body to be more effective at shifting from a from glycogen into fat burning, that shift of, you could think of glycogen kind of like jet fuel and you can think of, um, of fat fuels kind of like running on butter, right? If you ran that in your vehicle, one is going to work, run much more cleanly, provide more power, but the other is a long-term sustainable resource that can go on and on and on. Most of us, 99% of us, have um, a why a very deep reservoir of fat that we can utilize as fuel. Even the skinniest among us, most of us have um, the the most recent fuels and, and and foods that we've eaten. We've got a little bit of fat on our body, and we can run that fat. We can run our body off of that stored fat source of for fuel. Our glycogen fuel system is a short term system. It is utilized uh, and and put through and and utilized at varying times. There's a lot more science to this than I'm than I'm indicating right now, but the the basics of it is that you will run through the vast majority of your glycogen stores. Your body does store a little bit and keep some in reserve for um, you know those times back in our in our uh, Paleolithic days when we had to run away from a saber-toothed tiger or something after we had been moving for two or three or four hours. So there is a little reserve there, but it's hard to tap into. It's not 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 as easy as, as you might think. So you want to be, this is why the marathon is hard, and this is why it's challenging and why people talk about a negative split, because your body doesn't want to negative split. It wants to go out faster and then just hang on, okay? So that's a strategy you can choose. Um, the problem with the strategy of doing a positive split is it's exceedingly painful. It's just really hard, and it's psychologically painful. It hurts to run slower. You want to keep getting faster and feel yourself like a horse running towards the barn, finishing the race strong. All right, so that's a basic overview of what we mean by negative splitting. So you want to walk into this understanding and assessing your fitness, okay? So off the from the big picture, are you 90% to 100% likely of hitting your goal time? Then I would say that you should be looking at a negative split. If you're 80 to 90% likely of hitting your goal time, then I would say consider a slightly slight negative split, maybe by 30 seconds or a minute. Um, and then if you're less than 80%, likely of hitting your goal time, then you want to want to look at an even split. Okay. Again, these are big generalities. And the reason I'm making them, some people will look at it and say, well, if I'm not really ready to hit my goal, why in the world would I do and go for an even split for that? Uh, it seems like that would be counterintuitive. Well, I need to tell you that I'm assuming that you want a command performance and that you're really desirous of that result and you're on the edge of where your fitness is okay that's an important caveat here that i'm assuming you're um let's say you're a 320 you've run a 320 
marathon in the past, your training has indicated that you're at 315, but you're only 80% confident that you're going to be able to hit that goal, then you're going to want to make sure you go through that race course with a either shifting completely to a negative split plan, an aggressive negative split plan, which I'll talk about in a second, or that you look at it and say, I can't afford to try to go the first half significantly slower because I'm not sure that I'll be able to get the time that I want. So it assumes that you have a strong desire to hit the goal time that you want to hit, which is why you want to look at this this way. Okay, so let's move from a bigger picture, that big picture, into some more specifics here about how you can assess your fitness. So I'm going to weight the kind of training that you have done. I'm going to assume that in your programming that you have done um, some level of long runs, some level of threshold or tempo work, maybe at your half marathon pace or so, and then some work at your 10K pace or faster. If you haven't, don't worry about it. Um, your Many of the other things I talk about in creating a race plan are still relevant. This is for those folks who have much more detailed data on their training and that they have trained in a really specific way, working through varieties of different energy, so-called energy systems to try to optimize their training for their performance. So when you look at weighing your fitness level, you want to put the greatest amount of weight on the work that you did that are long runs. So how many 20 plus mile long runs did you do? Did you do one or two? Well, you should be not as confident in your fitness for 26.2 miles if you haven't done more than that. Now, there's an entire discussion on the, ver the, the value of long runs and where long runs sit and arguments that I have made or discussions I've had about other systems and how they utilize long runs. I'm not going to go into that here. You can go to the podcast episode entitled On the Long Run. But how many 20-plus milers did you do? If you did three, four, five, you can be really much more confident in your ability to execute your race plan because you've been through it. You've done it. Your legs have had that load on them. You've experienced the physiological, the nutritional, the psychological challenges that happen when you get over a certain race distance closer to your goal time. Go, your goal distance, and you should have a much better idea of where you're at. Did you do quality long runs? Meaning, did you do long runs with some level of pace work in it? The more of those you did, assess those, look at those, and see how they played out for you. If you didn't do them because they're not part of your training protocol, that's totally fine. You've done your long runs. Just looking at your long runs and assessing your long runs as the most important component in order to determine your current fitness based on your marathon, all right? Then the next level of, of value you should weigh in terms of your training, the training you did, is on the tempo and threshold work. Why? Because that's a little closer to the marathon paces that we're talking about. And if you felt comfortable with that work and you notice in your training log that that work went really well for you, I think you can be more confident that you're prepared. That's that's not that you're not not prepared, but just that you can feel more confident that that's more specific to the race distance that you're going to be running. And then finally, you want to look at the 10K and faster stuff that you did. Now, these are 
great. It's great to have done 5K pace work. It's great to have done speed economy work. It's great to have done VO2 max work, 10K pace work, whatever you want to call it. That stuff is really, really valuable for being the best runner that you can be. However, when it comes to running a marathon, it's not specific. And therefore, it's considered a support pace. It's considered a way to support the overall runner that you are and to maximize your ability and to guarantee that you have tested the system, run it through a wide variety of paces, and created greater levels of adaptation, which should make you a better runner. Yes, but they're not specific to the marathon distance. And so if you nailed your 5K and 10K workouts, but your long runs were very, very challenging, or you were unable to hit paces for quality long runs, then you should look and assess your fitness as saying, I'm not quite as ready for the marathon as I would hope. Okay? But if you hit, let's say that you hit your long runs and your quality long runs, but you screwed up on your 5K and 10K work and you couldn't hit those paces and you couldn't do that work with with consistent level of effectiveness, I wouldn't be as concerned about that. You just didn't do as well on the support aspects of preparing yourself for the marathon. So that's another way to help you assess where your current fitness is, all right? The next piece of the puzzle is knowing what your personal strengths and weaknesses are, all right? So what's your experience level? How many marathons have you run? If this is your first or second or third marathon, um, I don't care how fast you are. If you've got a command performance that's a bit of a stretch for you, then you need to know that your lack of experience is going to be a challenge. Um, It doesn't mean that you won't have an effective race. We've got to start somewhere. We've all got to race somewhere. But those of you who set aggressive goals while on your second or third marathon, you need to be realistic about the fact that there are many things that happen over the course of a 26.2-mile race, depending on the weather, depending on the conditions, depending on the hills, depending on how your body handles things, depending on the pressure that you feel. All of these things will play in, and the more race experience you have, the greater likelihood that you're going to be effective. That's a personal strength and weakness. So it's a weakness if you haven't run very many marathons. Nothing you can do about it except run more marathons. The more you run, the greater level of experience, and the more likely you are to be able to handle the various challenges that come up in the context of a marathon. Now, having that experience doesn't mean you're not going to screw it up. It doesn't mean that you're not going to make poor decisions or uh, or have challenges or have something weird come up. It just means that you're more, you've been through it before, you know what to expect, and you have the ability to make the adjustments necessary to be able to get through that work, to get over it, okay? So then the next thing you want to do to assess your personal strengths and weaknesses, what type of runner are you? And I like to put people into two basic categories, and this is a extremely extremely generic terminology. One I call steady eddies. These are folks who probably have a greater proportion of slow twitch muscle fibers, and they have a tendency to do much better at the distances and paces that are longer. They just seem to be able to recruit more of those muscles, or they're already born with with a genetic predisposition to those muscle fibers, and they kind of consider themselves steady eddies. And if you're one of those, you know what I'm talking about. When it comes time to changing gears and going faster and faster, you have a really big challenge of doing that. 
but when it comes to doing the long, steady, and consistent running that is more in the zone of half marathon paces to marathon paces to slower, you feel really confident and comfortable. So that's something you want to assess. Are you a steady eddy or are you a speedster? By that, I mean, do you nail these 5K and 10K workouts? Are you salivating over speed economy and faster than, than 5K pace work? Are you like built with more fast twitch muscle fibers, born with those? And have you maybe worked on those fast twitch muscle fibers more than another person has? There are some fast twitch muscle, there are some muscle fibers that, that switch depending on how much you use them. But we have some general genetic predispositions toward one or the other. Not that that matters that much, but you should know based on your training whether you're more of a steady eddy or more of a speedster. All right, if you're more of a steady eddy, you can be a little more confident in your ability to execute a, a stretch goal or a tough goal that you're trying to reach for a marathon. If you're a speedster, I recommend you be more conservative, especially if you're less experienced. So again, this is just a way of looking at your strengths and weaknesses. It's not a script. I'm not telling you how the race is going to go. What I'm saying is take into consideration what you're good at and what you're not good at, where your strengths and your weaknesses lie, okay? And finally, when we talk about personal strengths and weaknesses, we need to talk about your mental game, okay? Some of you know this. You're a gamer. You show up when the pressure's on, when the challenge is there, when the difficulty is presented to you, you always step up and you get it done. Some of you are chokers. Some of you, when it comes to having a bright, the lights on you and the pressure on and people paying attention to the successes or failure that you might have, or just standing at a starting line, you might have the level of nerves that just make it hard for you to get over those nerves. Now, the word choke has such negative connotation in our world, um, primarily because we're talking about circumstances that happen for athletes in the basketball arena or in baseball or in football where split decisions are made and then big times of reflection on those specifics are made like standing at a free throw line or waiting for a pitch to come down the pipe whether you're a whether you're the pitcher or you're the batter that there's these moments that happen that are short quick and a choker is usually not ready to handle them in our sport 26.2 miles two three four, five hours of duration, this aspect of being a choker is significantly less um, acute. However, it's there. It's something you want to work on. It's something you want to address at least at first. And then you want to be thinking, where do you slide on that continuum between having challenges on race day and not having yourself in the headspace to execute and effectively overcome challenges or are you a person who is like I always overcome them now when it comes to this topic about about whether you're a gamer or you're a choker let me just tell you that at any given time everybody's a gamer and everybody's a choker it just depends on the circumstances it depends on the level of pressure you're putting on it depends on who's watching and who's paying attention it depends on your overall view and mindset and why for why you're doing things. There's so many things that play in, but you can use this as sort of a sliding scale somewhere between having an absolute 100% show up and get it done perspective or a, I can never do it when the time comes to get it done and I'm going to be held accountable for what I've done, the training I've done. 
you're, most of us are somewhere along the, that, that continuum, and on given days or under given circumstances, we might be more prepared or less prepared. The greater level of stress you have in your life means the harder it is for you to be a gamer. For most people. However, there are people who have the ability to just shut down stress and not pay attention to it, which in the long run is not a healthy place, but it's incredibly healthy when it comes to getting it done in a short window of time. So just keep that in mind too, all right? There's a lot to that discussion of whether you're a gamer or a choker and what your mindset is from that perspective. All right, so then thinking more about your strengths and weaknesses, coming into this race, all right, taking away what you might be more generically of a, of a show up and get it done or, or have a challenge on race day, what's your confidence level at for this race, all right? So you assessed your fitness, and what is that fitness, all this topic about, you know, whether we negative split, how we assess our fitness, where are we looking at that, what does that make you feel? Are you feeling confident in your ability to get it done, or are you feeling not so confident? That's something we want to assess, something we want to pay attention to. And I'll get more into how you assess, what you do with those assessments and how you create a race plan based on those assessments. And finally, what's your level of nervousness? Are you someone who gets nervous all the time? Because that will play into how effectively you are going to get your goal. And if your goal is more of a stretch, more of a challenge, or you feel that there's more pressure on you to achieve that goal based on external people paying attention to your race result or the pressure you put on yourself internally, depending on how that plays out, all of this comes into how what level of nervousness you have. And knowing and assessing that as, an, as a, variable, a variable that will play out on race day is very important to keep in mind, okay? All right, so finally, when we talk about all these different aspects of aligning your fitness and your circumstances with the goal time that you want to run. We want to talk about course concerns, okay? This is a huge thing because when you run 26.2 miles, any race distance that you run, the route on which you do it and how that course plays out has everything to do with the kind of strategy that you create. So make sure you do your homework. Know your course challenges and do your homework. The first thing you want to do, look at a map or an elevation profile. Okay, now it's very important that you know how to read these things, okay? They are uh, very deceptive. The first thing you want to do is go to the website of the course that you're running, find their elevation chart, not their mile-by-mile mile map, but their elevation chart. What it will look like is there will be basically a um, vertical axis and a horizontal axis. The vertical is the level of of elevation that is on the course and the bottom axis, the bottom is the duration or the length of the run. And typically what will happen is whatever that course looks like, whether it's hilly or flat or whatever, it will have a variability based on the elevation. Now what's crucial about this, yeah, you're running 26.2 miles. That's pretty obvious. When you look at that bottom axis, it'll tell you, oh, look, there's an incline at mile 13. Oh, look, there's a lot of inclines between mile 16 and mile 20, like at Boston. Um, but what it doesn't tell you is how steep that is. And each elevation chart will have its own scale. It's very important that you know the scale of it. What the scale is, is it's either measured in feet or meters, and as you look at that that vertical axis point that that on the, uh, the what goes up and down, it will indicate um, feet or meters, and it will indicate whether they're being measured in tens, meaning ten feet, 
20 feet, 30 feet, or 10 meter, 20 meter, 30 meter. Or they'll tell you they're being measured in hundreds of feet. Okay, that would be 100 feet, 200 feet, 300 feet, 400 feet. Huge difference, right? If I do the math quickly, 10 times 10 equals 100, right? So if you are looking at a scale of 10 feet or 10 meters um, per mile, that's the scale of your of your elevation chart. Then you're probably pretty can be pretty confident unless there's just a lot of squiggles going ups and downs going to the right of that x y access point that you can say okay that while there might be some rollingness and there might be some undulating of terrain it's pretty obvious that this is not a really hilly challenging course okay um, however if that north south if that uh, vertical axis is in hundreds of feet and you see a lot of squiggles, a lot of ups and downs, you can be assured that this is going to be a very challenging and hilly course, right? Looking at the overall elevation gain is not always helpful because that will just tell you from the start point to the finish point how much you gained in elevation. What you're looking for if you're paying attention to this information is the total elevation gain throughout the entire route of the course. Um, to me, that's really useful for people who are looking at ultra marathon distances and looking at extreme um, when they're looking at thousands of feet of elevation change in, 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 in races. But for most marathoners, even the hilly courses like Austin and Boston and the undulating terrain that happens at, at California International, CIM, what's critical is just looking at seeing, okay, how much up and down is there on the course of my XY axis? And then how much of, of elevation change is there based on the scale? Okay. Once you know that you can have a better idea of how hilly and challenging your race course is. So take that into consideration. I just wanted to make that note because many people don't know that aspect of the, how to look at an elevation chart and they'll just take it from someone else telling them, Hey, this is a hilly course. Or, hey, this is a downhill course. Let me give you an example. At the California International Marathon every year, when you look at the elevation chart, you can see a very downhill course. In fact, the course isn't legal for world records or, um, well, there's a lot of reasons why, but it's considered a downhill and fast course. Um, and so people will look at that elevation chart and immediately say, oh, this course is easy. However, if you look at that scale, you'll notice that it's done in hundreds of feet. And so therefore, these little ups and downs that are going on in the first 20, 15, 10 to 15 miles are relatively substantial. Same thing with Boston. People will say, hey, Boston's downhill at the beginning. And yeah, it's a net downhill for sure. But people will tell you their visual and physical experience of running the first 10 to 12 miles of Boston is that they climbed a lot more than they expected to. Well, that's because they did not look at the elevation chart as closely and they didn't have an idea really how that elevation chart was going to play out on race day, okay? So make sure you know your, in advance um, what your hill, your hit profile is looking like, what the elevation change is, okay? Another thing to pay attention to when you're looking at a map, so is what kinds of twists and turns are on this course? For example, Boston, there's almost, there's like five or six or seven turns on the entire race course of 26.2 miles. However, you can go and look at um, London or Tokyo, uh, Chicago even. Chicago doesn't have that many, but other, other big marathons. And they'll have dozens and dozens of turns. 
um, I had a race that I put on that was 30K long a number of years ago in north of Austin in Cedar Park. And I had over 150 turns in an 18.6-mile race course. That is a very twisty, turny course. And so that means that there will be times where you're forced to slow down, um, adjust based on the number of people that are in the course. When you take a turn, there is that means that there's a bottleneck that will occur usually. Um, and you just want to pay attention to are there tons and tons of turns or are there or is there a lot of wide open space because it might affect how you look at how you design your race strategy for that race course. So these are things you want to pay attention to. Okay. Next thing you want to do is read race reports and reviews. Okay. Marathon Guide is a great location for that. There's a variety of different um, tools, just do a Google search. It says race reviews. You know what race you're running. If you're running Eugene or you're running um, Tunnels or you're running uh, uh, London, you can do a race review and you can read people's experiences. Realize that those experiences that people are indicating there are subjective, not objective, obviously, and they do not indicate what will happen for you, but hearing their stories and hearing the experiences and hearing the challenges, especially after you've looked at your course um, elevation and you've looked at your twists and turns, you'll be able to say, okay, people are talking about what happens um, like at Boston when you turn right from the fire station and you climb through the Newton Hills. That is a famous section of the course. And if you go and read reviews, you'll hear people having a wide variety of different experiences on that. The more experiences you can read about, the more likely it is that you'll be prepared for a variety of different challenges that might happen to you. So I highly suggest reading race reports and reviews even after you've, se you've selected your race. So perhaps you should do that in terms of deciding what races you run. But also it's really valuable in just deciding how you're going to approach your race based on the experiences that other people have. For example, back in the day in the, the – uh, the Dallas Marathon had a section that came off of White Rock Lake, and people would call them the Dolly Parton Hills. Um, the first time I ran it, I didn't notice any hills growing up in Austin. I mean, running and training in Austin. But I had also decided to run a pretty easy, smooth race. And I was just, I noticed them, but it wasn't a big deal. But many of the athletes that I work with will talk about those hills and being unbelievably difficult. Why? Because they show up right at a, the least opportune moment on the course. I think they were at, at the day, in the day, they were at 21 or 22 miles. So just keep that in mind and getting the, that experience from other people's race reviews is valuable. More valuable is getting, is interviewing your friends and training partners, people who have run that course before. Why? Because not only do you get their subjective experience, but you have the opportunity to discuss with them the varying levels of challenges they've had, and you know you can trust the input and the information that they're giving you, or not trust it, as the case may be, um, and use it as another way of assessing your best race plan and your best race strategy based on the suggestions that they make. I think it is really, really important to do that. And finally, when you're looking at your course concerns, the, the, the last thing you can do is look for any intel that you can find. For example, um, California International has a video that you can watch. I've known athletes that have, Kristen, in her case, has wa had watched before she ran um, CIM. I think she'd watch that video once a week or you know somewhere in the vicinity of 10, 20 times before she ran it. 
Now, of course, those videos are done in a car usually, and they're not at the same level that your eyes are when you're running on the ground, but it's still valuable, okay? Before your race, if you've got the opportunity to get out on the course and drive it, that can be very helpful to determining what's going on. For example, the Mount Charleston race, that is a rebel race, and it's extremely, it's outside um, Las Vegas, and it's a really fast downhill course. That course, when I drove it, I had seen the the, the uh, elevation profile, but when I actually got out on the course and drove it, I was absolutely shocked at how smooth and gradual that descent was. There were only, over the course of 20 miles, there were only two major incline declines, one of each, on the race course. That's unbelievable. Now, the whole thing was downhill, pretty precipitously downhill, but... It was an easier downhill than I had expected, and I probably would have created a different training plan and different um, downhill running plan for my athletes when I saw that. So just something to keep in mind, that you want to know, look for any intel you can find, anywhere you can find it on your course, and just tuck it away like a bee in your bonnet on what kind of option you have in terms of looking at what your course is going to be. In further discussion of course concerns, we want to be thinking, um, you know, you've looked at your, done your homework, and you looked at your elevation profile, you've read your reviews, you've gotten um, all the intel that you can get. Now we need to look at special considerations, like uphill and downhill, um, and how you're going to address courses that have primarily uphills and primarily downhills. All of this is aligning your fitness and the circumstances to create the best plan you can. So what special considerations are there on your course? As I mentioned, uh, you know, CIM and Boston have a net downhill, but there are hills in varying different places. Um, CIM has this long section at the end of it, which is a little bit of a mind fuck as you finish because you're seeing all these, You, I think you're at like my 80th, street or something like that at some point in time and then you have to run all the way down to 10th and so that's going to play some that's going to play a factor in there um is your course downhill primarily like a mount charleston or any other revel race then are you have you assessed how you're going to handle that and what you're going to do with that um when you look at the uphills and downhills how are you going to handle those uphills and downhills are you going to stay um, on an undulating, hilly, un, un, undulating terrain course, are you going to look at your specific mile splits? Or are you going to be more along the lines of thinking about um, chunks of splits, maybe 5K chunks or 10K chunks, rather than looking at each and every mile? So knowing that what your course has and the special considerations that your course has from an uphill and downhill perspective is absolutely critical and crucial when you're aligning your fitness with the special concerns and the, what's going on on the course, all right? So here's the thing. With these things that are like Boston or a Revel race, if your training has not factored in the specifics of your course and your course is challenging, then I have some suggestions to you, okay? So if you already know your course and you built your entire training protocol and programming around those course concerns, then you can just tune out for a second. But for those of you who are now, you know, four weeks out, five weeks, six weeks out from your race, and you don't have that much opportunity to do the kinds of specific training protocols and processes to prepare you for it. If you are preparing for Boston, 
you still have time at the juncture that this video that this audio is being created to do some downhill work. Um, if you're doing a revel race, uh, it's going to be really challenging, but you need to start doing that now. But for those of you who are listening to this and you're like, oh, shit, I have not really looked at my course profile and I didn't realize that the challenges of that course were going to play into how I make my strategy, then I have a few suggestions for you. All right. Number one, reconsider racing for time. Now, I'm not saying to throw away your goal time, but what I'm saying is reassess your goal time in regards to that and be more conservative. Look at creating a more aggressive negative split that could take into consideration the fitness gains you have and the training that you've done, even though it's not specific to the course you've run. It should still be incredibly valuable to you if you've done seven, six, five or six 20-mile runs, um, if you've nailed your workouts and you feel really good about where they sit. All of those things play into your ability to be ready for the race. However, and you may be able to run the end of that race really fast, but it does not really lend itself if you've got course challenges that have not been prepared for to be on the edge of a really... Um, even split race. You probably want to dial it back and consider more of an aggressive negative split playing, okay? And finally, if you find yourself in this circumstance where you're like, oh, crap, I've got this goal time and I didn't realize this course had so much downhill, then don't make this mistake twice. When you lock and load yourself in any training protocol, any training race, you know what your race course conditions are going to be like and you, tra you train for them. In our program at Telos for Boston, we do specific Boston workouts. We're about to line into our last nine, eight, nine weeks of training, and we have downhill work that we're doing. Um, we have uphill work that we're doing. We have long runs that take us into a simulation for what we're doing for Boston. For those folks who are running the Revel races, you need to be doing downhill running. If you're running mountains to beach, you need to be assessing and looking at that downhill, and are you ready for that downhill? And if you aren't, as you're listening to this, that's okay. Be more conservative. Do an aggressive negative split if you can, and don't make that mistake again, okay? All right, so let's talk about the final big piece of the puzzle in terms of assessing your fitness and the circumstances in terms of how you're going to create your plan, all right? And that's the weather, okay? In this day and age, weather seems to be playing more and more of a factor in the marathon. Why? Well, we have some climate change, it seems. I'm not, you know, I'm not here to be debunk or, or encourage. I, I know my viewpoint on this, but um, we're seeing more and more hot weather conditions. Or we're seeing really cold conditions like at 2018 Boston that were not expected. We even have a situation like at the 2019 Boston where we expected colder weather and it turned into warmer weather, okay? So weather plays a huge issue in your race, um, because of the race distance, because the amount of time that you're out there. It's, weather is a concern for a 5K race, but significantly less of a concern than it is for a marathon. Why? Because a 5K takes 15, 20, 25 minutes to complete, and a marathon takes two hours, three hours, four hours, five hours to complete. Just the duration that you're on your feet in the conditions plays a huge factor in what happens on the course. So when it comes to weather, I want to use a quote I've become famous for, weather is, okay? You need to realize that shitty weather is shitty weather and there's nothing you can do about it. You have two choices. Suck it up, buttercup, and deal with it, or don't run the race. And I'm not, 
I have no value judge with that. My view is don't fucking quit after you've started a race. But I know people who will look at a condition and say it's going to be 90 degrees by the finish of this race. My key reason for doing this race was to get a personal record. I can see why someone would just say, I don't want to beat myself up. I'm going to look for another race in another couple of weeks. It's three weeks, four weeks away. Um, adjust and adapt my um, taper schedule and get myself ready to run that race. I don't want to risk um, this command performance and getting this time that I want based on a weather condition day that's going to be absolutely terrible. Kudos. I, 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 I absolutely have huge respect for the ability to make that decision. However, when the gun goes off, you need to know that weather is, and then you also need to know that weather will affect your performance. So you can't ignore it. And I have made this mistake as an athlete. I have made this mistake as a coach. Frequently at Boston, we'll see a day that I think, based on the training conditions that we had in Austin, that are not um, too hot. And I'll say, oh, well, we trained in conditions like that. Well, we did but we didn't train in conditions like that with a big goal on the line where we were actually trying to push the edge of what we were capable of. Frequently, we'll run a long run in a relatively humid or hot conditions. But what happens when you're trying to run faster than you've run before for 26.2 miles in 90% humidity, it's going to have a factor. And so what I suggest is that you take it into consideration. All right? So heat and humidity... Heat and humidity are two different correlates, but if they're both in play, you absolutely need to be thinking about making adjustments. Ignore the heat and the humidity at your own peril. You need to take into consideration your own experience with heat and humidity. So if you're someone who is really challenged in hot weather conditions, you need to adjust your goal time. If you are someone who feels like you're really pretty good at running in heat, then you may adjust your goal time only a little bit, okay? There are lots of suggestions out there, and I'm not going to go into it on this episode, about how much adjusting to make and to do under different heat conditions and different humidity conditions. A quick Google search will give you some basic framework and parameters to look at for doing that. Um, I highly suggest you look at those. They're all a little subjective, but most of them are better than your um, own internal assessment of the circumstances. And they'll give you a range of time that you might consider running slower per mile or slower over the course of your entire race distance to make that difference better. So what's going on with the heat and humidity is you're immediately working harder. Your heart is working harder to push oxygen to your working muscles. Your working muscles are using that the weather you are using the blood to cool your body off and so it's less effective for you to be able to utilize for um energy and to utilize getting oxygen to your working muscles so the weather affects you in a variety of different ways that need to be taken into consideration you're going to work much harder in weather those weather conditions so it's not just the feel of it it's also what's going on internally there are changes happening that you're not ready for and you need to adjust and make sure. So should you adjust? When should you adjust? And how much should you adjust? So what I like to say is, number one, don't spend too much time getting too wrapped up in what's going on in your weather report until it's a week out. I know people want to look at it a month out. It's going to change. 
I know people want to look at it two weeks out, it's going to change. Even a week out, it really will change. But at least what will happen with a week out is you can start getting your mind ready for are you going to have a hot day or you're going to have a cold day. Now, again, last year's Boston Marathon, it seemed like it was going to be a cool day. It turned out to be a hot day. Um, the day, the year before that, 2018 Boston Marathon, we thought the night before it was going to be a little cool and chilly and, and, and maybe it would be decent weather conditions. And then it turned to be sideways, sleet and hail and incredibly windy and even more of a challenge than everybody expected. So here's the thing. You can make a general plan a week out, but from there begin to start adjusting and making a, a much more clear and concise plan two days out, okay? And then what I suggest is you lock and load about 12 hours out from race day. If your race starts at 7 a.m., by 7 p.m., have a locked and loaded plan. Why? Because you need some level of certainty and some level of intention when you get on that starting line. I appreciate things will change as you go, but you don't want to be constantly making adjustments to your overall race plan based on weather in all the hours preceding the race. It's too much energy spent. It's too much challenge of your emotional energy. So 12 hours out, I like to sell pe sell, tell people, lock and load on your plan. It's locked in. And then the adjustments that you make, you make in the race. So that's how you should and when you should. I mean, that's Sorry, that's the should and when you should adjust. So you should make adjustments if the weather's too hot. You should make adjustments if the weather's too cold to your overall plan. When is two weeks, you know, one week out, you make a plan, two days out, you adjust it, 12 hours out, you lock and load, and then you make micro adjustments or large adjustments, depending on what is actually happening out on the course as you're running. How do you do that? My suggestion is always to have some kind of construct in your own space. Everyone approaches this differently. I like the heat. I like inclement weather conditions. I enjoy those challenges. I adjust my goal time based on what is coming up in a race. I love the fact that there's this um, malleable and movable and adjustable situation that happens in marathon running and in all racing. And I expect that there will be a narrative that goes on in my success or failure of hitting a particular goal time based on what happened in the weather conditions. So I love it. I, I don't, I'm not so attached to my goal time that I would make an adjustment two days or a week out if it said it was going to be hot. I would just, I mean, I would make an adjustment in my goal time, but I wouldn't decide whether to show up on the race course or not. But others of you might, and this is not a value judge about that. Literally, you do what you feel best doing. But what you want to be sure that you do is that you're in a situation and scenario where you're effectively judging your own self and the internal psychological experience you'll be having in those weather conditions. So if it's bad weather, I just suck it up and move. But I've already adapted for that, and I know I've got some flexibility. For others I know who have really hard conditions in heat, I'll say slow off 10 minutes, 15 minutes for your goal time. Now try to do an aggressive negative split, see if it plays out. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. But I know for their circumstances that being aggressive with it is not the smartest move. All right? Okay, now. So we talked all about that. 
where it's 56 minutes in and all I've done is just talk about how you might adjust your plan. Um, what we're gonna talk about now is how you make your plan, okay? So the first thing you do is you decide and execute. So we get a big picture, tell the story of this race, tell your why of this race. So there's two basic approaches as you make your plan. Are you wanting to run a beautiful race or are you gonna be focused on a specific goal time? There are combos of this, but when people make combos, more often than not, I know for a fact that they haven't really made a decision. So it is my highest suggestion, my strongest suggestion that you make a decision. Is your primary objective to run a beautiful race or is your primary objective to hit a goal time? Once you've decided, that is your big picture. Okay? It's one of two ways. And it's all about how you want to tell the story. How you're telling the story of your life with this particular two hours, three hours, four hours, five hours playing out in the race court, race itself. Which of these two approaches do you want to take? Decide in advance. All right, now the details. So, are you going to do a mile-by-mile -mile plan or are you going to do a gate plan? So, what's the difference between mile-by-mile -mile and gates? So, mile-by-mile -mile means that you're going to use your watch to indicate and determine each mile along the race course where you are in connection with what your goal time is, what that split per mile is, and what you hit for that particular mile. I personally think this is not the most effective way to go about running a marathon. And to all of my athletes, I ask them to not do a mile-by-mile -mile race plan. Now, what I can tell them is it's okay if they pay attention to it on race day, but that they're not trying to reference a mile-by-mile -mile pace chart on their arm. Why? Because most courses that they run have undulating terrain, um, variability of circumstances, of turns, of weather, of number of people on the course, of a whole host of other things that happen that make it better to check themselves in larger chunks rather than assessing their success or failure or their ability to reach the goal or not reach the goal based on a mile-by-mile -mile assessment. I prefer to use gates. What I mean by gates are uh, longer distance check-ins. So I like to do 5K gates or 10K gates or for some people who are running a much more fluid and flowy race, maybe a first half and then to the 20 mile have a gate and then from the 20 mile to the finish line they have a gate. Perhaps someone who is concerned with how close they might get to their goal time being to the you know tens of seconds, they may put another gate at the 23 mile marker. So they've got the ability to get those last five seconds or 10 seconds squeezed out. What happens when you're on a mile-by-mile -mile race plan is you get fatigued physically and psychologically, and if you're not hitting your objective, you have a tendency to continue whatever direction that feedback loop is going. More often than not, a negative feedback loop. So that's the challenge of these mile-by-mile -mile splits is that if it's not going the way you want it to, you're required to see each and every mile that you're not hitting your objective. Whereas if you do it in larger gates of 5K or 10K long, then you don't really check in. You can look at your mile split per mile and have an idea of where that is. But when you come across the 5K mat or the 10K mat or the 
10-mile mat or the halfway point, you can look at it and say, oh, I'm 15 seconds behind my cumulative global time that I was going to run for this course, and I'm pretty close to being on, even if you'd run 10 seconds too fast, 5 seconds too slow, 10 seconds, uh, you know, 5 seconds too slow, 10 seconds too fast. All those undulations are very hard to take into consideration on a very close view. It's like you're too... It's like you can't see the forest for the trees. So I love gates, and I prefer gates. So the problem, again, the problem with the mile-by-mile mile is you get close, closer detail, creates greater stress. Sometimes that stress can be overwhelming, and it has, that has way less flexibility um, and too much control. So what do I mean by that? Less flexibility, control. For those of you who are control freaks, then you may want to choose the mile-by-mile, okay? It may be the best option for you because too much flexibility isn't good and that your feedback loops and your experience of running the race is much better. I had an athlete who on a few racing occasions checked their splits at 400-meter marks. Why? Because he wasn't looking at whether or not he was hitting exactly that split. He was able to stay in attunement with what was going on. He just wanted to control the circumstances much more closely, I can't imagine that. That would make me crazy. I typically prefer five-mile gates. So what do gates do? What, what, what are the value of those? Well, a gate requires you to rhythm and flow more and not have that hyper-assessment of each and every mile. It allows you to listen to your body a little more closely, pay attention to the signs that are going on, because each mile you're not checking in just to a number, but you're trying to guess and assimilate and figure out, am I on pace here? Am I not on pace here? So you're listening to what's going on in your body, and it allows you to have that ability to stay on a little bit more and get in tune with whatever's happening on that day under those circumstances in those conditions. Okay? And finally, the gates are mentally less work and a little less stress. Of course, the challenge with the gates is if you get behind pace or you get ahead of pace, you don't have the ability to check in. So for, very many, so for a whole lot of you, it may be that you want to do gates, but also do an assessment of knowing what your pace per mile that you want to run through each chunk of a course and then say, oh, I'm going to be 10 seconds per mile slower than MGP. Maybe your marathon goal pace for a race is 6.52 per mile. And so you say, oh, I'll be somewhere between 6.50 and 7 minutes per mile each mile and I can just keep an eye on that. But then you check your gait at each 5K chunk or each five-mile chunk or each 10-mile chunk, however you choose to, so you can see how far behind the overall cumulative time of the race course on where you are. When you're doing mile-by-mile, mile, it's very hard to stay in touch with how far ahead or how far behind you are. So as you're making your plan, initially, be sure that you factor your course in first and not the weather. Okay? Why? Because you'll make your weather adjustments in the week, two days, 12 hours, and in the race course. You don't want your overall race plan to be adjusted too much by weather. You can always toss out the plan tear it up and go on feel completely if you've got really horrific weather conditions. 
but it's my view that you want to have an overall plan of attack for your race and also that you've done your homework so that you have the ability to be more effective at making micro adjustments or in the game of play adjustments as the race goes on. The more intel you have, the more information you have, the more flexible and manageable your race is going to be. So create your race plan and create your details, working through the course itself and your fitness concerns, and not so much looking at it from the perspective of what the weather is. You can make the weather adjustments later. All right, so now here's the big thing. Do your details corroborate your big picture? So do your mile-by-mile and your gates help you in terms of looking at your beautiful race scenario or your goal time scenario? Again, I really think it's critical and crucial to make a decision on one side or the other. So do these details. Does the mile-by-mile or the gates, does it lock and load with what your overall goal is? If you've got a really specific goal time, is it going to be more effective for you to be mile-by-mile? Or is it going to be more effective for you to look at it from a gates perspective? It's up to you. But do the details align with your overall viewpoint? Because if the answer is no, then you need to go back and play with your details. And you want to look at those and how they play into and are assessed by this overall plan. Finally, when it comes to the details and it comes to making a plan overall for your run, your race, consider this. Always be closing. Nothing in a marathon matters more than physiologically, preferably, but at a minimum, psychologically, to be closing that motherfucker out. You want to be of the mindset and the approach that you are running down the dream. You are A, B, C. Always be closing. When you don't have this approach and this plan, you align for a negative experience before the race even starts. Now, I had an athlete that I worked with who came to me in our first meeting we ever had that he wanted to run a positive split. Now, this positive split, he, and he said to me, you're, I know your reputation. I know that you're not going to want me to do a positive split, but let me give you my rationale. So he went through his entire rationale. This was a gentleman who was trying to run really fast, and he was trying to run it on a flat course, and he'd done all his homework. He knew that at the end of the race, his nutrition and his tiredness and the, and the, and the pounding on his legs were going to play in, and that because his goal time was aggressive, that he was, going to ha- he was probably going to slip off of it, and he wasn't entirely sure if he was completely fit enough to reach the goal. So he wanted to stay in the field of play. He wanted to have the chance. He wanted to have the ability to grab the bull by the horns and finish it strong if it was there, but if it didn't, He was okay with that. He'd already factored in a little bit of slippage. Turns out, I said, yes, I think that's a great plan for you. Do you trust yourself? Yes, I trusted himself. I said, I trust you. So he went in and he he executed it. He had a, a slight positive split. I think it was like 15, 20 seconds overall the course of the two halves of his marathon. But he knew it in advance. And so his closing was an attitude closing, not an actual pace per mile closing. So keep that in mind. But no matter what, a marathon race plan should have as its overriding, overarching goal 
to be closing. Even if it's not pace per mile, it should be in running to the barn, closing it out, okay? So finally, the last thing that you want to be doing is you want to go back and check your work. So you've done all this assignment of, of aligning, you're checking your fitness, seeing where you were at, aligning that fitness with the different course conditions, the weather conditions, all the other factors that may come into play. Then you've created a race plan going through the course itself, going mile by mile or gate by gate and making adjustments for each mile as you're going along the line and deciding how you're effectively putting together an overall plan for a race goal time. All right? So now step back from it. Again, I'm going to ask you the question. Does your plan align with your training? And does it align with your personal philosophy? Because if you created a plan and you've created an overall goal that is completely different from the way you like to run and the way you like to race, then I'm going to suggest that you not do that. Unless you're just really stretching yourself. Unless you're taking a big goal and you're going for something and you don't know exactly how it's going to play out. Hey, this is about learning more about yourself. This is about fighting and having heart and taking risks so you can learn. So I get that. However, 26.2 miles is a long fucking time to be doing something that you're not knowing what the outcome is going to be generally. Okay? Does this align with your coach's philosophy? Are you creating a race plan that your coach aligns with? that he feels comfortable, he or she feels comfortable with, and that they sign off on. Why is that important? Because you want to have other people who are in the game with you. You want to have other people that you respect. Maybe it's not a coach. Maybe it's your training partners. Maybe it's your, your wife or your husband. Maybe it's um, someone else who's paying attention to your race results. But do they, when you go through your plan with them, do they look at it and say, hey, this aligns with the way I think that you should be running this race. This aligns with the person that you say you are. This aligns with the kind of training that you've been doing. Or do they have some other suggestions? Maybe you're pulling the wool over your eyes. Maybe you're not being incredibly clear and, and obvious about what you're doing. So that's important. Here's the, la here's the next point, important point. Do you believe it? Do you believe that this is something that you can do? As you step back and look at the big picture of this marathon race plan, is this something you can look at and say, I believe I can fucking get this done? If the answer is yes, then you've got a great race plan. If the answer is no, then you need to really look into that. You need to believe it's a doable, manageable race plan. You cannot go into a race of this distance with a lot of cognitive dissonance about whether or not you're going to be able to achieve the goal. Sure, there should be some of that. In my opinion, you should go into every race knowing that there's a chance that you won't succeed. But does this seem like if you had a good day and if you're ready, can you get it done? Because if the answer is no to that, that's something you really need to look into and you need to assess. And finally... Right? Do you believe you can do it? Perhaps the most important question of all is, can you do it? Because I have heard people who have told me that they are going to run 10 minutes faster than I think their fitness is. And if you know that, don't be blowing smoke up your own ass. It's not worth it. This race is going to win, one way or another. Okay, Even if you're drop, dropping 20 seconds, 30 seconds per mile faster than your marathon goal pace at the end of the, in the 24th and 25th miles, you still would have been running faster if you're running a 10K. 
Like the, the fact of the matter is that this race beats you up. And for most of us, it rolls us over on our belly and puts its mouth on our neck. And it, it, it submits us. We have our tail between our legs. We're peeing down the side of our leg. And we're realizing, I just ran up against what I was capable of on a given day on this course with these conditions. So can you do it? Can you execute this race plan? Because if the answer is no, then reassess. All right. Well, I hope this is useful. A lot of details in there. There's a lot of information. If, I, if you have some questions about this plan and, and how, it, how it might play out for you, I highly suggest you go listen to this podcast, listen to this episode six to eight weeks prior to your race, and then listen to it in the two weeks that you spend assessing where you're at and making this race plan. I usually recommend people get a real dialed-in race plan, you know, two weeks, one week to two weeks out. That allows them to have the ability to make adjustments based on weather or other conditions, based on how they're feeling, but they've got a big picture ready to go. It usually takes people about two to three hours to do this. I think that it's really valuable information. And anytime that an athlete does not do a race plan and then doesn't check the race plan through with me, I'm always significantly less confident that they're going to be able to reach their goal. Why? Because more often than not, they're not doing the race plan because they're scared shitless and they don't they want something that they're not ready to do. This race plan really helps you assess your ability to achieve the goal that you've lined out. I mean, the easiest part of making a race plan is knowing what pace per mile you want to run cumulatively for your overall goal and then chopping that up based on the course conditions and the hills and all the other pieces of the course, right? Like that's easy. The hard part is knowing what you're going to feel like in those conditions. And how do you know what you're going to feel like in those conditions? You don't. But you have a much better attitude and approach if you dial it in with the kind of work that you did. Are you a steady Eddie or are you a speedster? Do you, did you get a lot of 20 milers in? Did you do a quality long run that told you really good information about what you're ready to do? Or did you not? And so therefore, do you need to make a more conservative race plan so you can close the race out faster at the end than at the beginning and you'd rather have run a beautiful race? Or even from the perspective of just what kind of race do you want to run? So there's lots of information to go through. If you have any questions about this, send me an email, sisson at telosrunning.com. Again, this is what I ask all my athletes to do. So if you're interested in a training program and a coach who not only writes an overall program for you that assesses what your course is going to be and how to prepare you best in your training for it, but also sits down and spends an hour on the phone with you prior to your race to dial in your race plan, to ask you what, what blind spots you might have been looking into, help you f- make the best course corrections that you can for hills or weather or twists and turns or whatever the case may be. That's what I do. That's what I do with my, uh, for a living and I'm really good at it. So if you'd like to join us, you can, um, find out more information on my website, tellusrunning.com. Click on the training programs and join us. This is the ethos program. We'd love to have you. All right. Well, you guys have a great week and Godspeed.